Advertising Week is proud to present Great Minds, People, and Culture, a podcast dedicated to exploring the art of intentional leadership during times of change. The goal of Great Minds, People, and Culture is to provide our audience with practical strategies, reliable data, and tangible advice as we look to empower leaders seeking to make a positive impact. Each 30-minute episode of People and Culture is a deep dive into the intricacies of effective leadership, featuring insightful conversations with experts and thought leaders. Great Minds People and Culture premieres September 2023 and will be available through your podcast store of choice and at advertisingweek.com. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Frank Brightson. Frank is a legendary New Orleans chef, restaurateur. He has won every award there is to win in the business. It is my wife and I, Isla's very favorite restaurant anywhere in the world, Frank. And it is an absolute joy to get a chance to talk to you here and uh, go through your incredible career and talk about the great, great city of New Orleans. So a heartfelt welcome, Frank. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you, Matt. Great. So, Frank, I'd love to start by going back, and there were so many wonderful things written about you that our crack research team found, but I found one in particular, and I'd love to just read this to you. A young, broke, newly girlfriend, Les, Frank Brightson, had no idea that he was about to begin his life's work the day he answered a classified ad for aspiring Creole cooks at Commander's Palace. Is that pretty accurate, Frank? That's dead on. That's exactly what happened to me. I was at a point in my life, 24 years old. um, I was evicted from my apartment because the building was sold. I broke up with my girlfriend and my car broke. And so at 24, I had to make that phone call to mom, can I come home, please? So I did. And uh, after a couple of weeks of that, uh, I was ready to move. So I picked up a newspaper, which some of you young people don't remember that. It was a stack of paper that arrived on your front lawn every day. <laughs> exactly. And I, I went through the classified ads, and there was a help wanted ad for Commander's Palace. It said, now hiring Creole chefs or people willing to learn Creole cuisine. And although I had been in restaurants, food service for several years, I I had no fine dining experience. So I asked mom if she could drive me down for the interview, and she did. And I want to talk about both Paul and Ella Brennan, but let's start with Paul Prudhomme, who was at Commander's Palace at the time, an absolute legendary Titanic figure in the culinary arts in America, not just New Orleans and Louisiana. But talk about that first meeting with uh, Chef Paul Prudhomme. Oh, well, well, first, let me frame that a little bit, because for uh, Ellen Dick Brennan to hire Paul Prudhomme as executive chef of one of New Orleans leading restaurants in the mid 70s, it made the front page of the newspaper because he wasn't a formally classically trained European chef. Yeah, so I went down for my first interview and there was a couple of dozen applicants sitting in the patio filling out 
uh, resume forms and everything. And I finally got to speak with him and uh, just kind of get to know each other a little bit and spoke with me for an hour. He said, thanks very much, Frank. Uh, Come back next week and we'll talk again. So I came back the next week and there were a little fewer applicants. And uh, we talked again for an hour, trying to get to know me a little bit. And uh, he said, thanks, Frank. Come back next week. We'll talk again. So third interview. And there was just a half a dozen of us. He really kind of got a little personal then. He asked me, you know, Frank, where do you see yourself in 10 years? What do you want out of life? And, you know, I was a little bit rudderless at the time, but I felt that I loved restaurant kitchens and I wanted to learn. And I said, Chef, I think one day I'd like to have my own little place. Very interestingly, he said, we're going to hire you, Frank. He said, but you have a choice. We'll hire you as a broiler chef and pay you really good money and expect a lot out of you. Or you can start working in the uh, pantry, the garmanger, making salads and not making much money, but you can expect a lot out of me. And I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. And that's what I did. Fantastic. And Frank, as a younger man, you were 24 uh, at that time. Was this something that you were always interested? Was your mom a great cook? Talk about where, you know, that taste, if you will, for the culinary arts came from. Well, first of all, I think growing up in New Orleans, you automatically grow up with a tremendous food heritage. Uh, You know, the best cooks in in Louisiana are not in restaurants, they're in the home. Our moms, our grandmothers, etc. So I kind of fell into the restaurant business. In other words, I went to LSU for college and uh, I was majoring in fine arts. And it wasn't a popular decision with my folks, particularly my dad. So I had to pay my way. And so I started working in a sandwich shop and did that for a year and a half. And then in a little pasta place and kind of fast food pasta. And then became night manager there. And I just gravitated to the restaurant business. And when I moved back to New Orleans, I got a restaurant job as a prep cook. That job ended. And that's when I found myself with nowhere to go. By that time, seven years or so into the restaurant scene, I loved being in the kitchen. Uh, I knew I wasn't a waiter. (laughs) I didn't want to be front of the house. I just liked being in the kitchen. And so I I consciously chose this as my profession. And and Commander's Palace and Chef Paul and Miss Ellen, Mr. Dick gave me a chance. That's what everybody in this world deserves is a chance, you know, an opportunity to learn and grow. And in my six months at Commander's Palace, um, I worked every station in the kitchen. I learned how to saute when the saute chef didn't show up for work. I learned how to shake a skillet. (laughs) And uh, gradually, every station in the house in six months, that was my culinary education. Incredible, Frank. I didn't mean to make you cry. I can see how much it means to you. You know, New Orleans to me is the real jewel of America. And we travel quite a bit for what we do for a living here at Advertising Week. And, you know, people talk about New York and L.A. and the other places. And and I'll often say, have you ever been to New Orleans? And they'll say, well, no. And I said, well, you're missing the best thing we have. And among the best things we have in the best place is Commander's Palace still there today? Um, at the risk of making you cry again, I'd love to talk about the Brennan family and Miss Ella and just what special people they are. And I know that was a big part of what would one day become 
you know, James Beard award-winning chef and so many others talking about you, Frank, but could we go back to Miss Ella and uh, the Brennan family at Commander's Palace for just a few minutes? Absolutely. Um, you know, the they understood their role, not only as a restaurant, but in the community of New Orleans, um, outside of the restaurant, what they meant to the culture of this city. And, you know, New Orleans, it's totally, totally unique. Um, our food, our music, our people um, are totally unique. And, um, you know, there's a couple of stories uh, about Miss Ella that, that I think are very telling, very poignant as well. One day I was um, in the pantry and I was setting up, breaking down, getting ready for dinner between lunch and dinner. And it's an open kitchen. So guests can walk through the kitchen. And Miss Ella came walking through the kitchen with the great actor, Cesar Romero. And um, they were just chatting. And right behind them, a busboy dropped a whole pan of china right behind him. Huge crash. And Cesar Romero did his Cesar Romero thing. Oh! Right. And Miss Ella didn't flinch. And she just kept casually walking and chatting. And um, many, many years later, um, shortly before she passed away, I went over to Commanders to uh, take part in a, a wonderful documentary on Chef Paul. And I did my little piece. And when I was leaving, uh, Ella's daughter, T. Martin, said, Frank, you want to go see the girls? I said, oh, yeah, because Miss Ella and Miss Dottie were living right next door to the restaurant, adjacent. So I spent a glorious hour sitting with the girls. And uh, I brought that story up to Miss Ella. And um, she said, Frank, you know why I didn't yell at that busboy? I said, no. She said, because he already felt bad enough. What good would it do for me to break his spirit? And, and that's a lesson in people. And Paul was the same way. Uh, I learned not only to cook from Paul, but how to be a man, how to be a leader, how to respect people, no matter who they are. And those lessons are priceless. And, you know, I think, you know, going back to Miss Ella in her early years, uh, when at the original Brennan's on Bourbon Street, um, she was young lady in, in a man's world, let's face it, and um, trying to help her brothers uh, run this restaurant. And she wanted to do some marketing and, and, you know, advertising sort of stuff. And she went up and down Bourbon Street knocking on every door, talking to saloon owners, strip club owners, and everybody else saying, let's get together. Let's get together and promote ourselves. She never, ever viewed the restaurants in New Orleans as competition. She viewed it as a community. As she said when I spoke with her that time, Frank, what's good for New Orleans is good for me. And she's so brilliant that way. She, she always saw the big picture. Uh, wonderful stories. And, and both her and Paul, uh, uh, so influential. Paul, you particularly close with, and as I recall, you went with him when he opened up K. Paul's. Yeah, I did. Um, K. Paul's had been open as a lunch place um, that he and his, his, the love of his life, K. had opened. They had met while working at the 
uh, Dauphin Orleans Hotel. And um, he was still executive chef and doing K. Paul's lunch at the same time. And one busy Sunday, again, the chefs were late, probably coming in hungover and stuff. So I was busy frantically setting up the front line for jazz brunch at Commander's. And I was carrying this huge stack of plates. And he said, Frank, give me a second. Yes, chef. He said, how do you feel about sauces? I said, well, I really like them. He said, no, 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 let me rephrase that. How would you like to come to Cape Paul's and let me teach you the nuances of sauce making? Well, I had never heard of Cape Paul's. It had been open about seven or eight months as a lunch place downtown. And I'd said what I always said, yes, chef. So he snagged me away from commanders is what he did. And uh, I went over and we opened for dinner. I was the first night chef. It was me and a dishwasher. Um, I, I would go in about 1030 in the morning and he had just finished all the pot cooking for Kate Paul's. He'd come in at four or five in the morning and would talk over the lunch menu. Then he would go to commanders for his real job and I would cook lunch by myself and then break down, clean up and um uh, Here's another thing you young people may not remember. Uh, right next to the stove at Cape Paul's was this device hanging on the wall that you could call people on. We had a wall phone right there. Right. And I would call him after lunch and say, you know, what's in the dinner menu? And we would make the menu like that. And um, I would do dinner by myself. And so what a wild time, you know. And, and we started off doing 30, 35, 40 people for for dinner, um, and then 50, and then 60. And he get, he got me a helper, a, a young high school kid, came to help me. And he would also draft uh, wonderful Creole chefs like Leroy Thomas, who was a, a line chef at Commander's Palace. Leroy would come work days at Commander's and then come over and help me at night and show me stuff. So, Matt, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I don't have a formal culinary education, but I got to learn from some of the greatest Creole chefs you've never heard of. And that's how this cuisine has been passed down from generation to generation for 200 years. You get in the kitchen and you work next to somebody. And that's how I learned. And what a precious gift that is. So let's stay where we are, Frank, for a minute, because you talked about the best chefs are not necessarily even the ones in the great restaurants, but the moms, the grandmothers, I guess I'm sure in some cases the dads and grandfathers in their own homes. The creativity and the uniqueness of what we can find in your restaurant and so many other wonderful restaurants in New Orleans is completely different than anywhere else. Talk about that creativity and, and where it all comes from, which I'm guessing is an impossible question to answer, uh, but I got to think it's generations of knowledge and little bits and bobs that have survived and morphed and changed, but I'd love to talk about the uniqueness and creativity of what we get to eat in the great city of New Orleans. Absolutely, and I think it, it starts with well, there's two things that I think are critical. Number one, like any cuisine, it's the ingredients. 
you know, we have something no one else in the world has. We have the mighty Mississippi River pushing all this fresh water smack dab into the salty Gulf of Mexico. And along our coastline, this creates a delta, an estuary that's so rich and diverse in different kinds of seafood. Um, so there's always something in season. You know, I like to say there's four seasons in Louisiana, shrimp season, crawfish season, crab season, and oyster season. But th there's always something and dozens and dozens of kinds of fin fish. So let's start there. Um, and not to mention our agricultural uh, productivity is just, you know, really unique as well. From citrus to strawberries to peppers, all kinds of things that color our palate. So already we have a head start. And then it's the people, you know, people always come first with me. And the unique thing about New Orleans and Creole culture is that it's multicultural. It's so diverse. I mean, my great grandfather came to New Orleans from Bergen, Norway. Um, my mom, she came to New Orleans to go to nursing school from Alabama, a country girl from Alabama. So she had to learn to satisfy my dad's New Orleans palate, um, New Orleans dishes. And my dad, he never spoke about Norwegian uh, ancestry so much as he did German, which is where our family was prior to Norway. So she would make potato pancakes, German potato salad, things like this, smothered cabbage. Uh, but also the best red beans and rice you've ever had. Tremendous gumbo. She learned how to make a roux. Um, things like that. Oyster dressing for Thanksgiving was her signature dish. So it's this diversity. Creole cooking is not four or five things. It's a whole um, palette that's defined by all the immigrants that have come through this city in the last 300 plus years. Um, and that includes slaves, um, you know, let's face it, a, um, tremendous African influence. Um, you know, that's where okra comes from. Uh, the okra comes from an African word called uh, kingombo, which means okra. And African slaves being stolen from their homeland and cruelly put on these slave ships, not knowing where they were going, braided okra seeds into their hair. So wherever they wound up, they would have a taste of home. So there's all these stories, you know, the potato famine brought Irish. Uh, and it continues today, Matt. That's the beautiful thing about it. Uh, the Vietnam War uh, brought tens of thousands of Vietnamese immigrants to South Louisiana, where they continued their ways Today, uh, a lot of them became shrimpers, fishermen. Um, all the local greens in our salads come from a Vietnamese family in New Orleans East. Uh, when the um, BP rig explosion happened in, in 2010, all the fishing waters were shut down. So these shrimpers couldn't shrimp, the fishers couldn't fish. And so the elders in this particular family said, let's go back to the ways of the old country, let's farm. And now they have this huge, expansive uh, farm and distribution 
network for restaurants to produce salad greens, herbs, vegetables, all kinds of things. So, you know, as human beings, we don't really embrace radical change. It's more so world circumstances like war, like famine, whatever it might be that cause us to uproot and move to an entirely different country. And that's what's been happening in New Orleans for the last 300 years. Great story. And I, I want to go back and talk about the origins of, of your restaurant. But while we're where we are, there's also a resiliency to the great city of New Orleans. And uh, you've been through hell and back a few times with Katrina in particular, but that wasn't the only challenge the city has had. Talk about the resiliency uh, of the people of New Orleans and the great city of New Orleans. Uh, well, thank you for that. And and it's very true. And I have to confess, I've, I've come to really dislike that word. I don't want to be resilient, but I have to. You know, we were very fortunate in, in Katrina, for instance, we, we didn't flood at home or work. Uh, we were closed for four months and lived out of town pretty much for four months. But as horrible as that experience was on so many levels, I'm really glad I went through it because it made me a better person. It, it gives us perspective on what's important in life and how we, namely how easy it is to be kind to others. We're all in this together, whatever this might be. It doesn't cost a nickel to be nice. Lend a hand when you can. That's what I've learned. And don't take anything for granted. Um, I, I think we've all learned that in the pandemic. You know, uh, I can't go to work. Don't take anything for granted. Um, and, and I think we are uh, unique people in that sense because uh, we know bad times are coming. Something's going to happen. Um, and that's true for everybody that's listening to this podcast. Something bad is going to happen in your life. The question is, how do you handle it? And that's the way, as an employer, that's how I judge my employees. You know, how do you handle adversity? You drop something on the ground, you burn something, you, something's not here. Uh, how do you handle that? How do you adapt? Because stuff's going to happen. And how you adapt is uh, a way to measure your um, abilities and your talent and your wits. I think that story you told about Miss Ella, you can see how that has stayed with you and that she did not make that busboy who dropped that plate full of dishes feel any worse than he already did. Yeah. I, I think the people part of our business is so crucial and, and always number one with me. And, and the older I get, the more it's become focused. Um, the dining public, of course, uh, our staff and our suppliers and everyone else connected. Um, though that whole dynamic has to work and it's a big complex dynamic in a restaurant. A little restaurant has 55 seats and we have 22 employees. Um, it's different from a, a retail shop where you put something on the shelf and price it and ring it up. So there's a lot of stuff that has to happen today. You know, today, Tuesday, we have plumbing problems. I'm, I'm, I'm on my third plumber <laughs> trying to get somebody out. Finally did, but stuff happens. And, and so you just, uh, you accept it, number one, and then you deal with it. How do you fix it? 
Um, but the people part of it, and, and here's the great lesson I learned from Chef Paul Matt. Um, this was when K. Paul's uh, dinner service was really rolling. Um, we had 55 seats and we would do 200 people a night. Um, so we're cranking. And uh, one busy Friday night, uh, small kitchen and <laughs> no dishwasher machine. Everything was washed by hand. Pots, pans, glasses, forks, not everything. What a job. And we had a guy that was relatively new. His brother had been with us a while. And um, middle of the Friday night turn, I, I, I can't get any skillets to cook with. You know, tickets are piling up and I need skillets to cook with. And I, I lost my temper. And I, I went out the kitchen to Chef Paul, who, whose table was right there outside the kitchen. I said, Chef, Johnny's got to go. He, he, he's just not doing it. He can't keep up. And he said, Frank, sit down. I got smoke coming out of my ears. <laughs> sit down, Frank. Okay. <laughs> so I sat down. He said, Frank, I've never seen you this mad. But let me ask you a question. Is Johnny giving 100%? You think he's doing the best he can? And I reflected on that. I said, yes, he is. He said, well, I can't fire him. If he's given us 100%, he's got a place with me. And I reflected on that, caught my breath. No more smoke coming out of my ears. And I went back, got it back on the line. And me and Johnny were best friends for three more years. We took care of each other, helped each other along. And that has stayed, stuck with me all this time. That was 45 years ago. Fantastic. Well, I know you've written a great book about uh, food. You could write a business lessons book too, Frank. There's, there's a lot of lessons and a lot of life lessons here. So let's go back to that seminal moment. I guess it was around 1986 or so when you went to Chef Paul and uh, had the idea to move uptown and open the restaurant that is still there today, of course, and what's brought us together today. And that's your place, Brightson's. Thank you, Matt. And um, here's the really interesting part about this story. I didn't go to him. He came to me. Wow. One night I was in the kitchen and um, there was, you know, I, I guess we were just about to open or something like that. And he had this little table in the rear dining room. And uh, he called me out. He said, Frank, sit down. And it was he and Kay, his wife. And uh, he said, Frank, we think you're ready to go out on your own. He said, I remember when I interviewed you at Commanders and I asked you, what you wanted out of life. And you said, I think I would like to have my own little place one day. He remembered that. That was seven years earlier. He said, we remember that time here at Cape Paul's. You were cooking by yourself. You burnt your hand really badly. But you kept cooking. Because if you left, the restaurant would close. We remember, and he mentioned a couple of other incidents. Um, Oh, also, 
the first time they ever went out of town together, Chef and Kay, uh, first appearance on the Today Show. And it was the first time ever that neither one of them was in the restaurant. And it happened to snow that day in New Orleans. And the mayor, we had like, you know, half an inch of snow. And the mayor declared a state of emergency and asked all businesses downtown to close to let their employees get to the safety of their homes. So me and the bartender were discussing what to do. And um, we said, well, let's call chef. So I called chef and told him what's going on. And there was a, like a pregnant pause. And he said, Frank, do what you think is best. I said, okay, chef. So we opened. And not only that, I opened 30 minutes earlier. And the wait staff still hates me for that. But we set a record. We did 250 covers with our 55 seats. And <laughs> two days later, a chef back in town walks into the kitchen with his big old juicy smile on his face and said, Frank, I heard you set a record. I said, yeah, we did. He was so proud of me. It was the most beautiful thing. So he said, we think you're ready to go out on your own. And uh, he and Kay uh, lent me everything, the money and the support, set me up with a real estate agent, an attorney, a CPA, and went looking for a place. And uh, three, three months later, we found 723 Dante Street. Um, he negotiated the deal for me. Uh, he negotiated the lease for me and set me up uh, with all the confidence in the world, apparently. And uh, here, here we are, you know, and the, the, the end part of that was we, we're getting ready to open and stuff. And he says, uh, here's your last paycheck. You better get open quick. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. And we open five days later. <laughs> and here we are 37 years later. Incredible story. Chef Paul was really a celebrity chef before anybody knew what it was, before the genre. Uh, if we were creating a culinary Mount Rushmore in America, you know, he would certainly be one of the people on it. Talk about Paul and just what a seminal figure he was not only in your lives but in the genre in general really so far ahead of his time in so many ways as a personality Kay obviously a big part of that too uh but let's talk a little bit about paul prudhomme yeah i mean i could talk all day uh what what's really interesting matt is um you know i was in my formative years mid-20s um, and this 1980-ish was the formative years for American cuisine. Um, before that, you never heard those wor two words together. American cuisine, what's that? Um, but Paul, uh, who was fearless, um, he was a visionary. Uh, nothing was impossible. Um, he brought Cajun food and put it in a restaurant in New Orleans that was not restaurant food, that's home food. And he figured it out, how to do crawfish etouffee in a restaurant. He figured it all out. And um, it just exploded. And I think the world was hungry for this. Uh, we knew as Americans that we ate well, 
Um, and it, I don't know, it just, the media caught on to it. Journalists like Craig Claiborne was a huge supporter of Paul and introduced him to so many people. Um, and it just exploded, you know, and it wasn't just Paul, it was Alice Waters doing her thing in Berkeley, uh, farm to table. And Paul was doing the same thing. He would go in, home on the weekends to Appaloosa's Cajun country and come back in his pickup truck with all these little goodies for me. I'm like, what is that? That's Tassa. Well, what is that? <laughs> and so they wanted to showcase regional American cuisine. And that's what happened. Uh, Larry Forgione in Manhattan uh, opened a restaurant called An American Place uh, with Oh, my God, an all-American wine list, no French wines. And that was front-page news, too. Uh, Wolfgang Puck with what he did at Spago uh, and the Chino Ranch. You know, we they, these four people were all buddies. And so I got to meet all these people and would go every year to Spago and do the March of Dimes fundraiser at Wolf's. And I'd just walk it, step into his walk-in cooler and just... I could stand there for 30 minutes while I look at all this stuff. Chef, look, red bell peppers. We didn't, that wasn't a thing. You couldn't buy that in the grocery at the time. But when we got home, we started importing them because they came from Holland, you know? So these chefs, uh, knowing good food, um, just did their thing and, and it became so wildly popular. Uh, all the food magazines, gourmet, food and wine magazine especially, every issue was regional cuisine of the month. Creole cuisine, Southwestern cuisine, Native American cuisine, which is what Larry Forgione was doing up in uh, Manhattan with uh, cedar plank salmon and stuff like that. Um, it was such an exciting, vibrant, revolutionary time uh, to be a chef. And, and, and be a part of that. We had so many wild, wild adventures, traveling, um, amazing stuff. Absolutely fantastic. I remember an American place. Uh, hadn't thought about that in years. Your place, Frank, so unique in that you walk in and you feel like you're home and that you know that you're in someone's home. And that's from the moment when you pick up the phone to make a reservation to the moment you walk in, that all comes from you and from your lovely bride. Talk about how you've really just kept all that intact. That's purposeful, it starts with you, but you know we're talking about decades now and your place is the same in so many ways. The cuisine, of course, constantly reinventing what you're doing. You always, you always want the old favorites, but there's always something new to try. Uh, but talk about that uh, maintenance of a, of a brand, if you will, which in our world is very hard to do. Thank you. Uh, well, this goes back to people, and it goes back to Paul and Kay giving me all the support I needed. Um, my sister-in-law, Sandra Hansen, was one of the two first waitresses at Cape Paul's. She and Kay had worked together prior. And so that's how it all started. Um, Sandy, um, she and her two sisters, Rhonda and Marner, originally from North Dakota, 
And wherever Sandy's the oldest, so wherever Sandy went, the girls would follow one by one. She went to Minneapolis to go to college, they followed. She went to San Francisco to be a hippie, they followed. Then Sandy came to New Orleans for Mardi Gras and fell in love. So she would do six months in San Francisco, six months in New Orleans, and met Kay. And so uh, again, uh, Rhonda came to visit from San Francisco, and she was in the hospitality business. She was a bar manager, and she came to work with us at Kay Paul's as a bartender and manager. Um, and then the third sister is Marna. Uh, Marna was not in the hospitality business. She was a court reporter. But she came to visit uh, her sisters one Christmas. And I can still see her. I happen to be at their apartment, coming down the stairs in a red velvet desk, dress. And I was smitten, totally. So I married three sisters, Matt. And they're still with me today. Oh, my goodness. And we brought, I never had to worry about front of the house you know, when we open the restaurant together as the four of us um, do the thing. And so the K-Paul system sort of came with us. And um, we just celebrated Sandy's 80th birthday this weekend. God bless. And she's still working and she's still our spiritual cheerleader. Um, she's so feisty and inspiring and loves New Orleans culture so much. She's out to listen to jazz music four nights a week, this girl, at 80 years old. And, and so um, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. Oh, God bless. What a, what a wonderful story. So, uh, Frank, every meal at Brightson's is spectacular. And we were there a, a few months ago again and hope to be back soon you're still in there man in the skillet if you will talk about some of the creativity that goes into the things that you make how do you uh stay fresh if you will uh, your passion for it uh is unmatched but talk about how you keep reinventing but also honor the tradition and i know that when i go i know i'm going to get that great cornbread i know i'm going to get that pecan pie at the end but in between you don't know where you're going because there's so many things on the menu that you're dying to try well thank you it's um it, it's such a privilege to put my chef's jacket on every day matt because i represent i want to represent um the very long history of, of Creole culture. Um, you know, I'll be the one to make the trout meniere and the pecan pie and the gumbo. I'm proud to do that. I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. Uh, there's a reason these dishes are classics. It's because they're really, really good. And they like gumbo in particular, it's much more than food. I mean, this dish carries our culture forward and um it, it can bring you home too uh it, it does from it did for us when we returned from katrina i made a big pot of gumbo and got all the staff over to the house so it's a powerful medium in which to express ourselves and this goes again to people matt um i'm i i buy from three or four local farmers i'll buy whatever they have uh one of which which is this vietnamese american family one of them is um, 
a former culinary student of mine because I've taught a lot over the years, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, I'll buy whatever she grows because I want to support her. Um, she majored in sustainable agriculture in college, and she's been a world changer since she was 14 years old. I will support you. Um, and then in my staff, in my kitchen, um, I taught uh, at the university level at the John Fos Culinary Institute uh, at Nichols State University, and then locally at the high school level at the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, NOCA. Uh, and I've kind of almost retired from teaching, but I, I've met so many brilliant young people and, and I had the chance to pass on what was given to me and to return the favor what Paul did for me, I give these young people a chance, give them an opportunity to become the people they want to be. Five of my six chefs are former students, and the other is a former employee who taught also and is now back with me. So we together, uh, as a team, as a family, um, try to um, maintain the continuum that Creole cuisine is, but we're constantly um, having fun too. You know, I'll do stuff like um, crawfish egg rolls, mm. uh, you know, with a sweet and sour sauce. Uh, whatever I think is fun and good and whatever fits into our system uh, logistically, uh, I try and keep it fresh and fun, not just for uh, the guests, but for the staff, right? Because uh, they love a challenge, and and you touched on something I think is very important, and it's a lesson I learned very very early on as a restaurant owner. Um, like K. Paul's, I used to change my menu daily, daily. Um, there were some dishes that stayed on for a little while, but I, I felt like that's what that's what I do. And then uh, after we were open a couple of months, I went out to visit a table who had been in before and they were complaining, Frank, where's that duck dish you had two weeks ago? I brought my friends to have and now it's not on the menu. And that, I, I had to think about that for a while. And then I realized something very important and that is I'm not cooking for me. I'm not cooking for my staff. I'm cooking for my guests. And we're here to make people happy. Don't ever forget that it's called food service. Right. Uh, our role is to make people happy. And the thing about chefs is most of them don't ever see the guests. We don't see the full circle. We're kind of in tunnel vision in the kitchen, plating, plating, plating. But we're here to make people happy and give them two hours of joy in their lives. And, and we have to keep sight of that. And I always remind my staff about that. Um, but it, it has to do with, like we talked about people being uprooted by circumstances in the world and moving to another country. My creativity is like that too. It's very rarely some light bulb of inspiration. It's more about circumstances, a situation that's given to me, presents itself to me, and I have to be creative with it. Here's something, how do I use it? Or this dish isn't working, what can we do differently? So that's kind of my role now. And I don't physically cook much anymore. I'm, I, I have arthritis, osteoarthritis, and 
I love it, but I just can't do too much. Um, so I, I, I watch and I still put my hands on almost every plate. Um, I'm there every night. You, you, um, you bet. I and I, I love, I love how you work the crowd too, that you come out and uh, you sit with everybody for a few minutes. It's so special. Thank you. So the guy who brought me to you many, many years ago was someone we both know who sadly is not with us anymore. And my wife and I were in New Orleans in the early 90s, and we took a cooking class at the New Orleans School of Cooking with the great Joe Kahn. Yes. And I'd be remiss, Frank, not to raise Joe and just talk about him for a little bit. Uh, Joe was such a cheerleader for New Orleans. What a great guy. And and he, he's another example. You know, we've talked about how much Chef Paul and Kay did for me. There are literally tens of thousands of stories of, of Paul helping people. And he helped Joe. Um, Joe was a customer at Kay Paul's and uh, had the idea to open a cooking school uh, in the French Quarter. Uh, only problem was he didn't know how to cook. And so he, he went to Paul and, and just, you know, consulted with him and, you know, what do you think about this idea? And, and Paul said, go for it, Joe. Here's some, here's, let me teach you how to make jambalaya, gumbo, bread pudding, and pralines. And that's what he got started with. And, uh, oh my gosh, he's the world's greatest cheerleader. And, and I miss him dearly. Uh, he and his wife, Karen, were dear friends and, um, Joe was always, you know, no filter with Joe, no filter. He would come in and I remember one night, uh, we used, when we used to get fresh rabbits and, um, I got tired of throwing the rabbit livers out. So I, I put an appetizer on with sesame crusted rabbit livers with a port wine sauce and went out to see Joe. He said, Frank, what the hell are you doing serving rabbit livers? <laughs> He would let you know, boy. But he was another who was a, a, a torchbearer for New Orleans cuisine and culture and certainly recognized the diversity and that the role that diversity plays in our culture. I, I think that's so precious. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you talked about that earlier, about the diversity of New Orleans and whether we realize it or not. And I'm paraphrasing your words, Frank, we are all in this together. And at a time when we're so divided, uh, what you do unites people, unites culture, uh, and makes people smile and feel good and gives them two hours that uh, they look forward to, they enjoy it while they're there, and they think about it and talk about it after they leave. And I can't thank you enough for doing this, Frank. It was such a joy uh, to talk to you, to see you. Uh, my wife, Isla, and I can't wait to get back to your place and to see you and, uh, and, and just enjoy the pleasure of your company and have a great meal. It was a joyous talk and I really appreciate it, Matt. Lots of good memories here, lots of good lessons. Thank you. Fantastic, thank you, Frank.